0: Welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Lindsay and Krista. We're so happy you're here. Make sure you're subscribed. We put out episodes every single week. Baby. We've been doing this thing seven years. Seven freaking years. We changed Never missed a bit. week. I'm going to Never gonna brag. missed a week. Never missed a week.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is a feat. It's a feat. It's Cause weird because I can't imagine. It's honestly weird because I can't imagine missing a week. But I understand, I completely understand yes. it's a feat, but it's such a part of us and what we do. I can't imagine, not, no shade to people that have missed weeks, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I just understand. I, I mean, yeah.
0: If we didn't have support,
1: uh-huh. we True. would have missed a week. <laughs> well, we were working full-time jobs. We had no support. We didn't miss a week. No shade. But I'm a locomotive. I'm going to get to my destination She's a no matter what.
2: <laughs> yeah, literally, <laughs> tell everyone.
1: <laughs> we're going to get there no matter what, even if it's even if it's hard. I'm really excited about this conversation with Dr. Shafali. This is one we've wanted to do for a long time. Her book, Radical Awakening, was one of my favorite books I've read in the past couple years. I think it's super powerful. I think she's super grounded. I really, really love her and her work. So it was really great to have her on to talk about her new book, The Parenting Map. And when I was preparing for this interview, I was just digging into some of her content and some of the things that she's been sharing and talking about And she had this concept that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to share and kind of explore together because I don't know how I feel exactly about Mm -hmm. it. But the example was around women and their bodies. And women are so fearful of aging and fearful of actually accepting their body the way that it is that oftentimes whenever we have something, say, we have cellulite on our legs and we're like, you know, saying I have cellulite on my legs to a friend. And the normal thing is the friend to go, no, you don't. You have amazing legs. You know, they look great, whatever. But it actually, she was saying that the more kind thing, the more conscious thing, the more truthful thing, and truth is the most important part, would be to say like, oh, yeah, you do. And that's okay. Yeah. And it's like being okay with the actual truth of what is. And I felt like this a lot with just my journey, my body and my weight where I think, you know, there's a conversation around throwing away the scale, which is really beautiful. But for me, I had to really relearn how to love myself no matter what the scale said. So the scale and the number wasn't an issue or the cellulite isn't an issue or the sagging skin isn't an issue or... You know, whatever the beauty thing is or the body thing is, it's really our relationship to it. Yeah. So when we're actually really honest with ourselves and others about what is actually happening, it gives us a chance to love that thing as it is instead of trying to change it or trying to wish it to be
0: something else. Yeah. First of all, I think it's felt when, so if you say, oh, I have cellulite and you're literally can see cellulite. Mm -hmm. And your friend is saying, no, you don't. Your legs are great. It's just such a weird disconnect between you and another person. And though you understand why they say that, it also... It's not even a distrust because it's like, whatever, my friend's just trying to be nice. But it also creates an environment where the subtext is like, cellulite's not okay, rather than it's totally okay. Yes, Like, this is kind of a part of being human. People get it when they're young. People get it when they're old. Some people never get it. Like, it just is. So I really, I really, really love that point. And especially with your children. Oh, absolutely. Just being honest. Mm-hmm. There's many opportunities, I think, especially as women and in friend groups where these moments come up where you can just be honest and not play into kind of placating and insecurity and just making light of everything or whatever. And I've actually, I don't know if it's just getting older, but like, I can't do it. Like, I will absolutely be complimentary in a truthful way to make someone feel good with that intention. But if someone says to me, like, oh, my God, like this highlighting job on my hair, like it is a wreck. I can't lie about it. So it might be softer than like, oh, my God, it looks horrible. But like, I can't lie anymore, which is, I think, you know, a good sign. But I completely agree. Like, how are we setting the tone and also setting the standard in our relationships in that way so that we can change physically so that we can kind of be who we are in every season of our life and have it be okay? Physically
1: and emotionally. Mm -hmm. I think that I agree with you. And in my relationships and friendships, I'm not in friendships anymore where anyone I know would be identifying with their hair. Right. So with the hair example, I even have one of our friends, Gina, got a highlight job that was just so whack. And she's like, oh, my God, my hair looks terrible. I'm like, yeah, that's not your best. Not (laughs) your best one. And that's like just and then we know that it doesn't make her ugly. It doesn't make her bad. It's something we can both laugh at and recognize the truth of. And then she can go fix it or do whatever it is. And my friends will do the same with me. Like, yeah, not your best photo or not your best Whatever. And it's like that is intimacy to me is like being able to joke and laugh and not take ourselves so seriously where we're like, I have to look perfect all the time and I have to be, you know, amazing or I have to be all these things. It's like when people come up to me and they see stains all over my clothes because I eat and just like need like, are you a
0: Krista Williams from almost 30? Yes. (laughs) I need like a bib. It's
1: like, no, that's just who I am. Like, it doesn't mean I'm good. It doesn't mean I'm bad. It is what it is. But I can even say though, to be completely honest, that I do. I can feel myself seeking people, validating my fear when I'm saying things. So I can be like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't feel like, feel like I look, you know, yeah, I just don't look good or whatever. There is a part of me that still definitely wants them to say I look good. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think there is part of it where we also want people to remind us of the truth. Something with cellulite might be a little different, but it's like if you have someone that's like, I don't feel beautiful or I don't feel all these things. It's fine to not, but it's also like when sometimes my friends say things, I'm like, whoa, the world that you see is so different than what I see. And so it's also a part of being a friend or part of being in relationship with people where it's not like where the truth is actually not what they see, you know, so they are seeing something that's true where, you know, my... um, but is saggy or my whatever, my I have wrinkle on my face and that's the truth. But then there's also the truth like, whoa, that is not like what I see. Yes.
0: Yes. And I think it's a real friend when they can say, rather than like, no, you're so pretty. It's like, I wish you saw what I saw. You know, more of a grounded kind of conversation starter around like, what is this you're seeing? Or really, what is this you're feeling? And then Byproduct, seeing and just kind of projecting onto the mirror or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. What What are you feeling? For me, I'm like, what am I trying to control when I'm going to my looks so much? You know, what is the feeling that I'm afraid of feeling? Because in the season that I'm in, I've noticed myself more concerned about how I look than I have in a long time because I'm newly single not dating or anything like that, but it's like that means then that there's a currency that I need to have, which is being attractive, that will be part of my conversation and exchange with people that I'm dating. But for me, it's like, what am I trying to control or not feel or sort of prevent from being rejected or things like that? So I think looks a lot of times for women is a desire to control things. If we're feeling not loved or we're feeling whatever, it's like, then we're going to go to the wrinkles. We're going to go to whatever it is because we feel like we can control that. Yes.
0: And in the season that you're in, one of the best parts of it is that there's so much unknown. But one of the scariest parts of it is that there's so much unknown. And so I think that's definitely, I just remember that feeling so vividly, that desire to control something about what's happening. And then also, and I think a lot of people will relate to this, whether they're single or not, but especially... You know, if you're single, there's just this feeling and I just remember this anywhere I went. It's like not that I was looking good everywhere I went, Mm -hmm. but I would have that thought of even if I felt kind of like a, you know, trash bag. I'm like, oh, shit, I could see someone that maybe I'm attracted to or they could be attracted to me if I looked better. And there's this weird, just constant, like, internal feedback of the other person that we're perceiving when we're out in the world, when we're single, because there is that, and I'll just speak for myself, I just had that deep desire to meet someone and it could be anywhere. And so then it became such an obsession of like, okay, what do I look like? What am I wearing? How's my hair? Et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to Jenna the other day and we were talking about that and we were just like had the moment because I had that moment where I was on my way to the beach. And I was with a friend who gets ready for our walks for the beach because she's single and she's done it for a long time. She's like, what if I meet someone? And I was just looking like a trash bag. And I was like, this wouldn't stop them. Like my person, like this look wouldn't stop them, whatever I truly look like. And it's not like I'm perfect at that. I think my desire is like that, obviously. And the way that I want to up-level my person, I perceive that part of that, package that they will desire will be someone that looks a certain way. So obviously, that's sort of a different part of yep. that same type of paradigm or a different yep. way to look at it. But yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Well, thank you for going on that journey of exploration with us, <laughs> all inspired by Dr. Shafali's work. That was a little bit from Radical Awakening. But again, today we're going to be talking about the parenting map, which is really powerful because whether you're a parent currently or thinking about being a parent, Or even if you are not thinking about being a parent, this is important because understanding how you were parented or lack thereof is going to be really supportive for you in your healing journey and understanding yourself more. It's going to be helpful for you in romantic relationships, how you show up at work, how you show up at friendships. And I found this conversation to be really inspiring and exciting. I'm someone that wants to have children. I'm really looking forward to that. So understanding these types of things about how I grew up and how I was raised to make sure that I'm not going to apply those same things on my children and have a clear idea of that Mm -hmm. is just so helpful. Because I think a lot of us say, I don't want to be like my parents. And we kind of say that, but we don't really understand what is happening or what we're doing. So to have a true understanding
0: of those patterns so that we can not actually do that and have a plan for it's powerful. Yeah. Even during this conversation, I was kind of catching parts of myself or maybe it's whether programming from my own parents or even just like society where I was like, wait, but how, how do you discipline the child? Or, you know, there's just kind of this immediate focus on the control. And so I thought it was really liberating to talk about how our purpose is not to control our child or to mold them into who we think they should be happy, successful, competitive, you know, all, all these things that we like dream our children to be. And it's really the purpose is to awaken as parents through this relationship, through this like conscious connection with our children. So I even I was like, oh, wow, I'm catching those parts that would probably unconsciously maybe slip into some patterns that whether I was parented with or just kind of observed consistently. So yeah, I thought it was so, so powerful. We talk about the over-identification with being a parent and a savior. We talk about breaking the generational cycles. We talk about the ego and how that stems from our childhood wounds and how that shows up in this dynamic. We talk about other ways to discipline, kind of what discipline can look like, which I really, really loved and hadn't thought about, you know, if you're disciplining your children around the iPad or like having too many cookies, it's like, how do we create the conditions so that that's not really happening? And her number one is through connection. Yeah. Connection over control. A little bit about
1: boundaries as well. And then we talked about how this sort of dynamic that we have with children about discipline, about control and dominance is really seen across our culture and society. It's seen in the way we treat the earth. It's seen in the way women treat each other, women Mm -hmm. treat themselves, some men also as well. And how this is really like a linchpin for so many things of the way we want to consciously evolve Mm -hmm. as a human species. So I am excited about this one. You can get the parenting map out now. It is really, really great. Again, any of her books are incredible. And you can find her on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram at Dr. Shafali. It's S-H-E-F-A-L-I.
0: Thank you for listening to Almost 30. We so appreciate your listenership. And if you wanna learn more about what we do over here, we have an incredible community. If you're someone who is just on their path and awakening, or maybe you're awakened and just seeking like-hearted friends, we have a membership that we're super, super proud of and always excited to pour into. And you can join at any time. So you can learn more at almost30.com slash membership.
1: Yeah, and then we have programs like The Life Edit, Sacredness of Being Single, The Law of One. And we also have support for podcasters. Mm -hmm. So if you're a podcaster that has a dream and vision, we can help you launch your show. We can also help you grow and monetize, which is something that we've done from the ground freaking up. So it's all almost30.com and then almost30podcast on Instagram and TikTok. Both have been popping off and we're excited to see you on the grams and the TikToks.
0: Enjoy this one. We'll see you soon. Enjoy. Therapy, y'all. I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did before therapy, to be completely honest with you. I think I was kind of a mess, but you know, found it when I was meant to. But I have been going to therapy for about six years now, which is so crazy. So crazy, but it has changed my life, and I will continue to invest in therapy for as long as I can. I feel like it has totally, totally made my relationships better That's BetterHELP.com slash Almost 30. We're so grateful to have you. Thank you for coming on
1: Almost 30. We're really excited to talk about The Parenting Map. You are someone that is such a leader and someone that is so heart-centered in all the work that you do. And your work has deeply impacted Lindsay and I and so much of our community. And I'd love to talk about this book in particular because you've written other parenting books. So why did you feel like there was this desire to create this book, The Parenting Map, in particular?
2: Well, because raising children is so deeply maddening and difficult that I had to write yet another book, (laughs) but this book is slightly different. Um, It's the how-to of my other books. My other books were the what and the why, and uh, this is truly a step-by-step, very pragmatic, concrete. I lay out 20 steps with practice exercises to help parents raise empowered, resilient, and secure children you know who feel worthy we all want that but no one taught us how to do that and no one sent us to school we don't get a degree there's no continuing education that's it you know we were told that you will just know how to do it and that is that is the biggest lie of parenting that you just know what a bunch of bullshit that is so when we realize we don't know like after minute six right? Of giving birth. We're like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me because I don't know. And I don't want to be left alone with this thing. And I'm terrified and I'm exhausted. And no one told me I will feel all these things. And the lies out there, which are that, oh, you'll just automatically know how to bond with your kid. You'll just love it every minute of the day and night, endless nights. No, not true. You will just, you know, intuitively know what your child needs. No, not true. None. You will just love it right from the start. No, not true. And so parents are set up in such a cruel way that reality then feels like a failure. Like <laughs> all reality feels like a failure and you blame yourself, you loathe yourself and you then want to fix your child, send them to therapy. And it just sets up such a cataclysmic domino effect of Disconnection, frustration. So, this is my fourth parenting book, my fifth book in all, but my fourth parenting book. But this book, I think, will change the world because it will give parents the empowerment and the know how that they have been yearning for.
0: Mm. Yeah, I truly believe that. And, you know, when I think about if we were to ask parents out there, what do they want for their children? I'm sure they would say, I want them to be healthy. I want them to be happy. I want them to be successful. I want them to achieve all the things I wasn't able to or something like that. And I thought that was a really interesting point in the book where we have kind of these like very idealistic and very specific expectations of how our parenting will create a very particular child, hopefully. And so can you speak a little bit about, you know, why that can be kind of distorting the parenting experience and really putting so much pressure I remember that pressure, that feeling as a child.
2: Oh my goodness, that's it. You hit the nail on the head. Most of us were raised with parents who thought, oh, I just want, I just want, I just want, I just want. And what they're really saying is, I just want a child to fit into my movie. So most of our, our parents just had a movie and we had to play in that movie and read the script to perfection. And when we were bad actors and burnt the movie set down, we were told we were bad and we needed to go get fixed and we were punished, yelled at, shamed. So it is so much unconscious baggage that uh, imbues the parenting journey that we have no awareness is actually the cause of the dysfunction. The child is not the cause of the dysfunction. The parent's movie is the cause. And the greater the delta between expectations and reality, the greater that dysfunction. So the more the parent projects onto the child that I just want this kind of child, you know, a pretty little obedient little girl who just is so sweet and polite and loves to dance and sing and does well in everything and loves to cook. And I know I'm being stereotypical, but but trust me, most Mm of us moms will put that on our daughters. You know, no one will say I want a badass warrior who fights and defies me. No one will say that ever, right? And for the son too, we want the perfect son who's athletic and, and quote unquote, masculine and strong and assertive and, you know, just the prototypical bullshit that we, we were raised with and we put it onto our children. So the more stringent we are though in that fantasy, it's actually an indication of our unconsciousness, of our lack. The more we want our children to be great is because we want to feel great. And the reason we want to feel great is because we don't feel great. And we're using our children to meet that expectation. This is what was done to us. We were all raised to be instruments of our parents' fancy and were fine-tuned, you know, and overplayed and overparented to become that. So we, we had an authentic self. We were abducted from our authentic self. Then we went through dysfunctional relationships and addictions and wrong careers and down the, you know, the slippery slope. And then we reached rock bottom. And then some of us, maybe, Went through an awakening and then we found ourselves again. But really, all of that was unnecessary if we just were parented consciously. And that's what my work helps parents arrive at. It's not an immediate solution. It takes a long time. But, you know, you inch your way into greater and greater consciousness. And with each inch, you release your children to be who it is they are meant to be. I would love to
1: talk to the women of our community and audience that aren't yet parents and do not yet have children. Because I think so much of your work when I was reading through it was so powerful for me because I was able to look back at sort of the patterns that I grew up in and sort of the patterns that I potentially would work through on my children or potentially put my children through. So I'd love to talk about for those people that are not currently parents, how this work would be really helpful for them.
2: Yeah, I wrote this book really for any human being who's interested in awakening. And to look at their parenting patterns from their childhood. So the entire stage two of this book is about identifying patterns. Your ego patterns, your parents' ego's patterns, your partner's ego patterns, and your child's ego patterns. Because we were all raised to be abducted from our authentic selves. So we all had to wear, most of us, I've never met a human being who stayed authentic, had to wear masks. And these are, you know, the super achiever mask, the super pleaser mask, the overdoer mask, the rebel mask to get attention, to feel significant, to feel as if we were worthy. In a weird way, we gave up our innate sense of worth, put on these masks to look for worth, right? So for anyone out there who's not a parent, there's a lot you can do to heal yourself from your childhood and how you were parented. So this book will show you and it'll give you so many insights into, wow, yeah, I was puppeteered in that way. Wow, my parents wanted me to be happy all the time. And as a result, I'm terrified of my big, uncomfortable emotions. And that's why I've been an addict. You know, whatever your aha is, you begin to see that your the way you were parented is so deeply influencing your life today. And you'll actually not only get insight into your patterns, you'll actually forgive your parents and be less resentful because you'll see in my book, The Parenting Map, how these are generational patterns. So there's nothing to hold your parents in resentment for because they too were raised unconsciously. So this book is is about freeing yourself from generational pain and not carrying that legacy of hurt, pain, resentment, bitterness into your current life and to your children. Hmm. And
0: allowing your child to be who they truly are, I think there is maybe a thought or a fear in parents that want to also bring in some form of guidance and discipline so that their children remain safe, they remain on track, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious, How do we strike that balance? Because obviously children come into this world, um, especially as babies, like dependent on us, literally. And so what does that balance look like so that we can allow our children to be who they really are and really continue to become who they really are?
2: Great question. So when people often hear about my work, they immediately think that because I'm telling them to not be in so much control mode, like give up control, they think now I mean sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Like there's no (laughs) boundaries. But you and I know that truly conscious people who've done a lot of work on themselves are actually very boundaried. They have a lot of boundaries. They have boundaries around how much they eat, how much they drink, how much they don't exercise, how much they allow for toxicity in their life. As we awaken, we become more and more disciplined internally. So, what I'm trying to teach in conscious parenting is stop trying to discipline your children out of blind reactivity and control, but instead develop so much inner discipline that your house reeks of discipline by just its conditions. So instead of yelling at your kid 50 times, don't eat the cookies, get off the iPad, don't do da do, 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 control, control, control. Instead of that, because you are so connected to yourself as a parent, you'll just not have enough, all those cookies in the house. You just will have boundaries around your own iPad use and your own screen time. So that will just become the conditions around which your child thrives. So I often tell parents, don't control your children, be in charge of the conditions through which they can rise. Take care of the conditions, don't worry about the child. If the child is in the right conditions, the child will thrive. Stop micromanaging the child. You know don't tell your child not to have alcohol or that alcohol can be toxic for you while you're like the biggest beer guzzler in the world right you you are the conditions you are creating the setup. so just create the setup, focus on the conditions, what you have control over, and then the child will most likely fall into line right if you're if all of you are watching you know, TV together and interacting together, your child is not going to perhaps want to go to the room and play video games because you're connecting. So I talk about connection before control. When you connect, you create this environment that your child wants to come home to. Your child will actually not stay out till two o'clock at night because they'd rather be in your home with you because you've created this lovely container for them to thrive. They feel like you are their best cheerleader. You are the safest place for them. You are the most you know, freedom giving parent. Why would they fight that? They, you know, Rebellion occurs with too much rule making, not with freedom. When you have freedom, they won't rebel because you're lovely. So we've been doing it all wrong. And I teach in my book, The Parenting Map, how to do it right. And when you do it right, parenting becomes joyful, lovely, you and your children have a lovely relationship. Not that there are no challenges, but it's less stressful because we're focusing on the right things.
0: Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. I have been doing these Superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him
1: A lot of what you talk about and even the example you gave in the beginning of the book of you and your daughter's day at the park really speaks to the amount of embodiment or the amount of our own conscious awareness we have of our feelings and emotions and being able to self-source you know, a lot of our energy or a lot of our validation and being a conscious person ourselves. So For people listening, what would you say to them about their journey for becoming conscious themselves and becoming aware of their own patterns and processes as they become parents? Because that will be the foundation of how the relationship with their child is born.
2: Yeah, beautifully said. You said it. The more we self-source, the more we look inward, the more we heal ourselves and become whole. And what that really means is how much have we accepted ourselves with our limitations, This is not about being pristine and not having limitations. This is about being whole with limitations. The more we do that, the more we will enter all intimate relationships with this energy of, okay, you are not completing me. I don't need to use you and this relationship to feel better about myself. I stand on my own worth in my own purpose with a clear mission for who I wanna be. And you and I are interdependent for sure but I'm definitely not sucking on you to get my needs met. Now that parent is a healthy parent and the child of that parent will grow up knowing that I can fuck up, but I'm not going to destroy my mom because I'm messing up. She's okay. She'll always stand by me and give me guidance, but her sense of self or worth is not dependent on my fuck ups or not. So what freedom then that child has to be in a bad mood or to be going through their own pain without feeling like, oh my goodness, my mom won't be able to to handle it. And so many of us grew up with that burden. Oh, I better not tell my dad that he's gonna be so angry or he'll be so disappointed in me. So we cut ourselves off from our parents because we didn't want to have them face pain. We shouldn't have to impose that on our children. Children don't have to be burdened by that. We need to be okay within ourselves, no matter what our children are going through. So there's this adage, you're only as happy as your least happy child is rubbish. You shouldn't be as happy as your least happy child. How is that going to be helpful? Sure, it's painful to watch your child go through something painful, just like a kindred friend would find that painful. But not more than that. Our sense of worth and joy needs to be self-sourced, self-garnered, self-initiated. And that's a healthy parent. And that
0: feeling not whole and finding a wholeness in your child's accomplishments or just like how you are as a parent, you know, that over-identification with being a parent and also, as you say, being like a savior, I guess like where, so just so we can understand like kind of the, the tracking of that and better understand our parents' Does that come from their childhood? Is this something that was kind of, they were indoctrinated into in society, I guess. Where does that come from, that over-identification with being a parent and a savior?
2: Two pathways for that to be so solidly ingrained. One is we were raised with ultimate superiority in our parents. Our parents thought they were the ultimate know-how. They had that energy about them and they controlled us and we had to fall into line or else. So now we carry that as the model, right? So one is through direct experience, observing it in our parents, thinking that that's the way to be a parent. And then culture definitely clearly tells us, that's the second stream, that no, as a parent, this is your identity. You get to manage the situation. Your child's moods, feelings, interests, hobbies are yours to control and produce. You get to curate this masterpiece. So go ahead. And then when your child doesn't do what you say, culture has told us there's this thing called parental discipline. I mean, parental discipline is a glorified, legit institution. It's so toxic that we parents have given ourselves the freedom to unsupervised, unrestricted, unmitigated access to our children's body parts. And we can shame them, yell at them, curse them, abuse them, and spank them, slap them, and do what we want with their body. And it's glorified as a legitimized way of parenting. In fact, it's the thing you should do. And I can tell you, I raised my daughter without punishment. Yes, I did lose my shit on her. And for that, I have atoned hurt, and redeemed many times over, but because I had to awaken, but that's about it. I mean, I, I wouldn't dare touch her body, but yet so many of us were raised thinking that that's holy, like it's in the Bible, apparently some version of something, you know some verse that says spare the rod and spoil the child, you know, actually it, I look at it as, yeah, spare the rod and spoil the child, go Mm -hmm. ahead and spoil the child, Mm -hmm. go ahead and, and, and take care of the child so much. But of course, people read it the other way. Like if you spare the rod, you're going to spoil the child, you know? So we think it's our quote, unquote God given right to, to use the rod on our children. And that means all sorts of control, manipulation, abuse. It's okay and I call that bad parenting, lazy parenting, toxic parenting, under no means do it at all parenting, you know? Yeah,
1: there's this kind of belief at times that if you're loving your child in a secured attachment way that you're spoiling them. It's kind of sad in our culture that sometimes we see people or people see people that are deeply connected and committed to their children, and it's seen as something that's bad. It's seen as something that they're going to spoil them or, you know, it's going to be detrimental to them. But the conversation around body, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because that specific point makes me think about consent as a, as a topic. But the topic that I wanted to talk to you about as it relates to body, because our audience is mostly women, and we've had a lot of conversations around body and body neutrality and body acceptance or whatever it is, a lot of the ideas that I had around body and sexuality and how I needed to look came from my mother I had to be a certain size. I had to look a certain way. I had to be all these things. What is what you've seen in your process of all your work been around with the way that mothers kind of are with their girls around how they should look and their bodies? And what are some things we could do to sort of unlearn those things or not pass along our patriarchal view of our bodies to our children?
2: 100% it comes from moms, but it could come from dads. So let's not just blame moms, but Mm -hmm. it's cultural, right? So the mom is a prey to body and beauty standards from culture, as we all know. But yeah, it starts in the most small things, right? If if your child did not finish all the pasta on the plate, that's because she's honoring her body. Don't tell her, oh, just two more bites, eat it. You're telling her in that moment then to override her body. So how will she know what she wants if we keep overriding our children? You know, so giving choice is so important in, in my work. Even for the two-year-old, oh, do you want the yellow socks or the pink socks, right? Within their jurisdiction, we give choices. When they're seven, we ask them, do you want scrambled egg or fried egg? Do you want to watch this movie or that movie? you want to eat Chinese or Italian? This is not about indulging children, but it's about teaching them they have integrity, they have wisdom, they have knowledge, they have knowing, and they have the right to manifest it and that they will be heard. They do have a space at the table and they will be heard at the table. How will we teach our young women especially if they were never trained as daughters to have a voice, to know what it is they want? So when I tell parents to give children choice, they go, oh, I have no time to give people choice. I will, no, no, you know, just immediate reactivity against me and what I teach. But I then tell them, well, don't you want to raise a leader who knows themselves? How will they have practiced knowing themselves if you know everything for them? Can you please not give your opinion so much? Can you please not direct them even though you know the best way, because the more you insert yourself, the more you're robbing them of their power to know themselves. So of course you do it in developmentally appropriate ways, but your mission as a conscious parent is always to turn the baton of empowerment back into your children's hands. Wherever possible, hold back your opinion, teach them to think for themselves, to find their voice, even if they make mistakes, give them the practice to say no, no, why you and, and why, why are you saying no? Good, make a case, right? I talk about in this book, The Parenting Map, teaching your children to negotiate. Don't just teach them to comply. Then you're raising a daughter who has no voice in her dysfunctional relationship later on. Teach them to negotiate because they need to know they have the skills to create a case, of course, developmentally appropriately. But after the age of 12 or 13, they need to come to you with proposals. Okay, mom, I I have a proposal. I want to, you know, buy a Bentley. Okay, let them have the audacity to say that. And then for you to go, oh, really? Th- that's I want one too. Let's, let's create a plan to make that happen in the next 26 years. Right? <laughs> but don't just say, no, you're stupid, right? Teach them that, okay, you want to have 15 children over. I want to have two. Let's have a negotiation to let you win because you are a member of this house and you're important and let me win because I'm important too. And let's negotiate, right? Let's create win-win situations. But parents don't like that because it takes a lot of work and effort and quote-unquote relinquishing control, which is our greatest fear, right? We don't want to relinquish control. And we need to get over ourselves because the only way to raise sons and daughters who respect themselves and others is to give them that respect and to teach them that they are valuable and worthy because children who grow up feeling valuable and worthy will not maraud the value and worth of others. And and body, integrity around body, you know, I've had enough food, mommy. Okay, good. You've checked in. Your body says you've had enough. I will put this in a box and you can eat it later. Immediately you honor it. You don't say, well, you're wasting the food and please eat my food. And if you cared about me, you'd eat my food. Same with mommy, I don't want to hug my grandparents. Okay, you just can say hello. You can just say hello. Just be polite. That's all I need from you. You don't need to hug anybody. If, If they say, I don't want to wear the coat outside. Okay, mommy will carry the coat. And then if you feel cold, you wear it later. They will then say, damn, it's cold, mom. Give me my coat. Stop trying to impose your ways through blind reactivity and fear, because actually you're robbing your children of their integrity, of their own inner knowing.
0: Yeah, I love that negotiation piece. I'm curious, you know, if if a child is being brought up in a two-parent household, how can parents come together so there's not uh, the one parent that the child goes to or there's Visible disagreement or conflict. I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but I would love your thoughts on that. And then also in a single parent household, just that dynamic. And I can imagine easily that becomes, um, my husband says his mom was a dictator for many years because she was a single parent. So I would love your thoughts on that.
2: Well, ideally, we want two conscious parents, but that's very rare in your generation. I think your generation is more awakened. And hopefully you all will have more two-parent homes of conscious parents. But in my generation, it's even rare to have one. So conflict is inevitable in parents. Of course, we don't want to have loud, smashing brawls in front of our children where they feel unsafe. But allowing our children to see healthy debates and arguments is okay as long as they get resolved. So when they see healthy resolution, that's good. But brawling and arguing and screaming and being abusive is horrible for our children. So we want at least one parent to be conscious to protect the child against the other parent's unconsciousness. And we do the best we can within what we have. And if we need to leave because the child is unsafe, we need to leave. I often tell married people, you now are no longer first a married person. You are first the protector of this child's spirit. So you have to do whatever it takes to take care of this child's spirit, and then you can be a good husband or a good wife. But if your partner is abusing your child, but you're more focused about being a good partner and you allow your child to be abused, that is not okay because you're allowing a defenseless being to be abused. So you have to think first protect the weak and the indefensible, and then you can be a lovely partner.
1: Yeah, that's huge. I think a lot of our community are, we've had this conversation a lot where a lot of them feel like they're on their conscious journey, they're on their awakening journey, and they don't feel like their partner is on that journey with them, or they don't feel like they're growing at the same pace. And I think that could be spiritual ego, of course, you know, when we first have our awakening, we're like, "Yay, everyone else needs to be doing exactly what I'm doing. But I do feel like there's a lot of women in particular that are seeking to become more conscious and they are in relationships with partners maybe that aren't as conscious, how does that affect a child when you have that dynamic? So say in your example, we have something happening where there's an unconscious parent, whether it's the male or female, whatever, whatever the partner is, and then there's one that's conscious. Do they see the discrepancy and, and does the inconsistency affect them negatively?
2: Yes, they do see the inconsistency. Yes, it's not ideal, but it's better for there to be one conscious parent than zero. So the conscious parent will just have to do more work to explain to the child gently that it's not your fault. Sorry, we're two different people, but you know, you are good. The child needs to hear it's not their fault. They are good, they're worthy, they should not worry, and only a conscious parent can do that. Now what to do? And then the conscious parent, if it's unbearable, can make the steps to leave that relationship because it's more toxic for the child to have that presence around.
0: I did want to talk about just examples of discipline, healthy discipline, or healthy guidance that we can provide our children so that we're not just kind of projecting onto them or trying to control them. So can you give some examples for
2: people? Sure. So first, before we even think about what we should have rules about, we need to ask some questions. We need to ask, what is this rule for? Is it for their life, to enhance their life, or is it to enhance my ego? So I talk about ego-enhancing boundaries and life-enhancing boundaries. And most things you'll see are ego-driven. Play the piano for 16 hours a week. Okay, who said? Why? Who said the piano is going to make any difference in this child's life? It's wonderful, but is it necessary? It's not necessary. So most of our boundaries around irrelevant, unnecessary things that then become wars in our house and then we tell the child that they're disrespectful but we don't see how we've set up a stupid rule. Too many rules will create the need for punishment, okay? Because no human being wants to live with too many rules, right? Do you want to live with an auditor who's looking over your shoulder at all times telling you what to do and what not to do? No, you will be driven stock, raving, crazy. Same with our children. Pick your rules. Have the fewer rules, the fewer rules to break, the fewer rules to correct, everybody's happier, right? Instead of rules, I talk about connection, right? Make everything so much fun and connected. Bath time is fun. Brushing teeth is fun. Going to bed is fun. Everything is done through the language of connection. So then the children are not breaking rules, right? I did my entire child's adolescence without curfew. Why? Because again, I knew that she was with good friends. They're all wholesome they're all mostly hanging out in somebody's house, they're having fun, they will come home on time. And within the group, there was this ethos that we have to go home and sleep because we like ourselves. We don't want to be tortured the next day. So I never had the rule. I kind of gave a vague thing, come home by whatever, midnight. But I didn't create these boundaries, which then she would inevitably naturally break because of life. And then I'm feeling all upset. So people often have rules. Dinner is at 7, 12 and you know, and then bath time is 7.42, and then we have to be in bed by 8.45. So when we set it up so rigidly, we are creating havoc by the fact that we are rigid. Or we have another rule that everyone needs to sit at the table. Okay, great aspiration, but try getting a four-year-old and a two-year-old to sit at the table. Why even have the rules? If we're all together, what does it matter if one is on the floor in the bathroom and one is on the floor in the kitchen? It's all together. I mean, unless you live in a megaplex mansion, which in that case, you should be reduced to a one-bedroom apartment because you don't want a megaplex mansion with children, right? You want to be in one place. So who cares if your child is sitting on the floor versus sitting on the chair? We create these stupid rules and then we set ourselves up for failure, right? Be vague. Everything should be ish, seven-ish to eight-ish to (laughs) nine-ish, you know, as long as we just get into bed in one piece, right? And not screaming at each other. Just have fun. Many parents don't want to sleep with their kids. And I always say, if your kids are under the age of seven, just go into the bed with them and fall asleep. That's it. That's bedtime. And then your kid will fall asleep because you're boring. You're asleep. And then you get your nap, right? Stop fighting with your children. But I will give you a tip if you ever choose to become parents. Do not let them come into your bed because it's like the guests who never leave, they will never leave. So you want to go to the other person's house so you can leave, okay, go to their room. All I'm saying is relax. There is no need to discipline if you just are connected. Right Mm. now, what do we discipline our children about? Let's see. Let's talk about your toddler hitting you, okay? Do we need to discipline that or do we need to understand that toddlers don't have a brain yet to regulate their emotions, that they only speak through play or hitting? They don't have regulation. So what do we discipline? How do we discipline a two-year-old hitting someone? I mean, really, do we put them in the corner? Will that teach them anything? No, it's only going to teach them shame because they didn't know what they were doing. They They didn't mean bad. So we gently talk about nice touch. This is nice touch. Look, I love it when you love me. And gently we teach them. It'll take like 16 months for them to learn nice touch because they just are impulsive. They're not bad, they're not evil. So suppose your, your five-year-old says, I hate you, you're the worst mom. Okay, really, what are we going to punish that? Spank the kid and really become the worst mom? And every example I can show you, that connection is the only way, understanding, compassion, leaving the room, letting your child calm down, regulating yourself. So I talk about all this. I give so many examples in this book, The Parenting Map, about how shaming, yelling, screaming, spanking, and punishing is never the right way, ever.
0: Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking back to childhood. It wasn't terrible, but I, those moments of just feeling like, mm-hmm. why am I being punished? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. For having a feeling, you know, one of your points I want to repeat is, it does really, I keep hearing the word lazy. It is such a lazy... Yeah way to parent because it does take time to sit down and say oh like you know why why are you hitting mommy or teaching them nice touch like that takes time and effort and patience which I think a lot of people they might think they have but when it comes down to these moments where there's heightened emotion but then also a call to connect with your child they really don't have and must practice it so yeah I just think that's So, so powerful. Did you as a parent have to swing the opposite way in order to come into more balance? Like, I guess, what was your kind of turning point as a parent, if there was one?
2: I saw myself parenting unconsciously with ego and screaming because I thought it was my right to get my way. And when I saw my two-year-old buckle under my anger, I woke up. I realized, what the hell is wrong with you, Shafari? Like, are you insane? Yes, I was insane. But I was so deeply in my conditioning, I didn't even know. But I'll tell you, there were clues, right? She didn't like it, but I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't want to yell, but I didn't know any other way. I thought, that's what you do. You know, if the kid doesn't listen, you yell at the kid. Or you can dominate the child and you can control them. So when I saw how much my child didn't like it and how I was causing her spirit to just get so crushed and that I didn't like it, it was giving me indigestion. It was giving me palpitations. It was giving me so much guilt. I was like, F this, I'm doing something different. And I then came up with conscious parenting. And at that point, there was no one talking about the parent's ego. And I was one of the first ones and it was very bold and very scary to go out there with this message because parents are very defensive your generation is different because of all this work now we've done you can break ground now but back then we didn't have i didn't have social media i didn't have the internet i had to like go one parent at a time but then as parents began realizing then they were like wow you're right it's me and then actually it's liberating because you know when you realize that you can do something about it that's so much more empowering than keep on waiting for your kid to change or your partner to change.
1: Yeah, I think that's the the motto for life, <laughs> being the change. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about domination and control of children, it's interesting all of the things in life we try and dominate and control. You know, Mother Earth, animals, like it just kind of goes beyond our children, our bodies, our bodies. Huge. You mm-hmm. know, everything,
2: every success, you know, we're trying to cheat our way to be so perfect by control and domination. The whole toxic masculine paradigm is control and domination. The healthy masculine paradigm is assertiveness, protection, power. But the toxic masculinity that we are seeing in our corporate world and, and albeit it's only a few men on top, that that model is to dominate and separate and micro-control and abduct. Abduct the earth, abduct children, abduct animals, abduct other species. I mean, look what we've done. We have literally taken over the Amazon. We've taken over the oceans. We've taken over land. We've taken over (laughs) the trees, birds. I mean, that's how this model is so toxic. It's not just about children. And that's why I say conscious parenting is the way to to save the planet. Because once you realize this model and you realize it's about interdependence and sovereignty, then it goes everywhere. That's why I do this work. It's not because I love children only. It's about changing the evolution of this planet because we are destroying our planets with this God complex, which which we see in parenting the most. Mm. So we raise our children with superiority, control, and domination. The child then raises their children with superiority, domination. Then we go out in the world and we have industries and corporations which are based on domination, control, and superiority. And that it goes on and on. The human species is plagued with superiority, domination, and control, and separation. And we are the worst in doing that. I mean, I know no human likes to think of themselves like that, but we are really quite toxic. I'm Mm -hmm. being polite here. I have a lot of thoughts about how homo sapiens are so evil and toxic or can be. And we are trending towards being more that than being the other way, which is what I teach in Conscious Parenting, which is about conscious living. And you're seeing the trend is going more that way. There's no stopping that trend.
0: Yeah, I pray. I pray for more people to just kind of take on that really like innate right to explore their consciousness to awaken. But I wanted to ask just a really simple question about the parent-child relationship and what the purpose of it is, because I think people have a lot of ideas of what a parent and child relationship should be. But I'm more so wanting to hear about like for the parent, because I think they kind of relinquish, oh, it's not about me about the child, so I would love to know the purpose in your words, your idea.
2: Yeah, thank you. So the purpose is really for the parent to awaken themselves. And I write, made this book serve as a wake-up call to all of us parents so we realize that our children are never ours to own, nor to control, manage, produce, or create. Their presence is bestowed upon us for one reason only, to ignite our own inner prophetic and profound revolution may we all heed this call so that we can free them to be. So that is the, the role, to ignite our own inner prophetic revolution so that we can set them free to be who it is they came ready, inherently destined to be.
1: Beautiful. While well, setting ourselves free and Mother Earth free <laughs> is the mission and setting our bodies free, yes. all of that. But I'm really grateful for this conversation and your time. And your work, again, is, is so profound and So accessible. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm really excited for everyone to get the parenting map. And I learned a lot today. Thank you, Dr. Shafali. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr.
0: Shafali. Again, the book is The Parenting Map and it is out now. And thank you to our sponsors for this episode. And if you're new to the show, Krista and I vet brands. So we're only bringing you the brands and experiences that we love and believe in. You can find all discount information in the show notes as well as on almost30.com. We love you guys. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.